divine providence, uh, today's Torah and tea is the Parshish Mishpatim. So we'll discuss a little bit Parshish Mishpatim, but it's also the 22nd day of Shabbat. This year marks the 30th Yorzeit of the Rebetzin, Chaim Mushka. She was the daughter of the previous Lubavitcher Rebbe, and she was for over 60 years the wife of the Rebbe. Wow. Uh, and, you know, I was thinking about, you know, about the Rebetzin, to talk a little bit about the Rebetzin, dedicate today's class in the memory of the Rebetzin. But when can you see a person really coming through? That's in a time of crisis. How you handle crisis, you know, when, when a person is in the uh, normal mode, uh, regular mode, you don't, you know, things are basically routine. You don't have a glimpse into the really inner makings, but uh, of relationships, of uh, how to deal with uh, difficult situations, how dedicated one is to the other. But when it comes to a uh, crisis situation, then somehow you get a glimpse. Uh, the Rebetzin was a very private person very private person, meaning that she never ever um, went into the spotlight to any recognition. She ran away. Matter of fact, whenever she would need to call the office for the Rebbe, she would call herself Mrs. Schneerson from President Street. That's because they lived on President Street, so he says, this is Mrs. Schneer from President Street. The three crises that the Rebbe had in his leadership. In all these three, I want to just mention briefly something Somebody's unique. Somebody's calling you. Huh? You gave me a phone call. Which is unique. When you think about situations, you know, when your husband has a job, when the kids are well, mm -hmm. uh, when everything is going good, okay, so then you don't see the specialty, you don't see the devotion, you don't see the connection, you don't see the wisdom sometimes uh, of the other <coughs> person. Especially someone like the Rebbets and when on a day-to-day -day basis when things were going smoothly, uh, you didn't see her involvement or how she uh, was at all involved in the Rebbe's leadership. But I think, I say, I call it three crises in the Rebbe's leadership that I call, that I can recall. And I'm sure that the people that know are more familiar with the history and they know all the details, they'll tell you that there's a lot more. But in my mind, there's three crises that we uh, that experience. One was before I was born. And that is how the Rebbe became Rebbe. Because after the past, she was the daughter of the previous Lubavitcher Rebbe. After his passing, um, the Hasidim turned to the Rebbe that he should become Rebbe. And the Rebbe adamantly refused. He did not want to accept. It took a whole year for the Rebbe to come around and take over and become the Rebbe, the seventh Lubavitcher Rebbe. And it's, uh, it's told that the one who finally prevailed was the Rebbe Tzanchayim Mushka. She prevailed but her insistence that the Rebbe should become Rebbe. Her argument was that the 30 years of total self-sacrifice of my father, which is the previous Rebbe, 
cannot go to waste. <laughs> she says, we can't have it end over there. She says, you have to do it. And she prevailed. So I think that was the crisis in the Chabad history, a crisis with the Rebbe, what the future would be. Now we know exactly what we owe the Rebetzin uh, for the Rebbe's leadership, that she is the one that finally insisted and prevailed, and the Rebbe became the Rebbe. That was one crisis. The next crisis can be uh, described in two ways. One was a physical crisis, and the other one was a spiritual crisis. The physical crisis took place in 10 years before her passing, that is 40 years ago, during Simcha's Torah. During Simcha's Torah, at the time of the uh, great celebration, and by the Rebbe, joy was something very important. We're learning now in the Tanya how important it's to have joy in life. That with joy, and the Rebbe goes through talking about how do you get the joy, and even if you experience difficulties, how you can overcome, gives you various different advice, how to rid your mind from being depressed, from being down, but he says joy is very important. The Rebbe always stressed, emphasized joy. Now, actually we learn in, 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 in Hasidus, it, it says over there, it's in the Tanya that it speaks of, it says that you can experience joy, but joy that comes after uh, being uh, sort of sad is a greater level of joy. So which means a person who only experiences good life, never has to worry about a thing, everything is always good for them, they don't even appreciate their joy so much because they always had it. So somebody who's always had whatever they need, they always had enough money, they always, the children always were uh, going, doing the right things and everything was working, their marriage worked out perfectly, they never fought and they never, everything was beautiful. So then they don't appreciate what it means to be happy and joyful for all the gifts that Hashem has given you. But if you experience some downtime, if you experience some difficult time, and then, Baruch Hashem, you uh, come back, then you experience, then you're really happy. Then happiness is in a much greater level. Same thing is in the service of Hashem, in service of God. If you always love God, and you're always connected to Hashem, then your joy of connecting to Hashem is not full, is not complete. But after you reflect on your life, and maybe you say, well, I made some mistakes, and maybe if I would have known, I would have done it differently, or something so... You are, you know, honest, you take a good look at yourself and you say that, and you feel a little bit upset that way, if I could have, you know, done things differently, I would have. And then from that level of being down, then you come to the realization, oh, I'm still able to serve Hashem, I'm still able to get close, it's never too late, let me do the best I can now. The joy that you experience then is much greater than a joy that if you never had any 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 downside, if it was only going up, you didn't experience that. So, uh, the Rebbe, uh, we're saying here that you know the Rebbe's, um, I forget how I brought it. The, the Rebbe emphasized joy. So the Rebbe's joy, the Rebbe's joy was always, especially in Simchas Torah, the Rebbe was very very joyful. But the Rebbe's joy, that's my suggestion. I mean, I've heard that, but didn't come. 
because the Rebbe didn't experience any difficulties. His joy was a joy, which means after the Rebbe would hear everybody's troubles, and everybody would write to the Rebbe all the difficulties, and he would feel for them. And he, so the Rebbe actually took in all the tzoros of the whole world, he took it in, and he really lived it, and it caused him, in other words, a little bit to be down for all the problems that the Jewish people have. And then he came out and the joy was so much stronger. That's why my, the Rebbe's level of joy wasn't that the Rebbe just experienced everything good, but it was a joy that comes after the experiences of notwithstanding of all the service and all the difficulty and all the challenges. And yet, look what we can do, that we can continue to make progress, we can strive, we can bring so many people back to the Hashem to do and to accomplish so much, that gave the Rebbe a tremendous level of joy. And maybe, perhaps, the Rebbe's joy was more than ordinary joy is because it came from the experience of being realistic and seeing everything that's going on. But in any event, that was the Rebbe's major, uh, major holiday, was Simchas Torah, it was his major holiday. And it happened that 10 years before the passing in Tavshin, Lamed Ches, that was 10 years before the past, 40 years ago. That was before the Rebetzin, 10 years before the Rebetzin passed away. The Rebbe, during the Hakafos, those in Chabad, we do Hakafos the first night, it's the Shemini Atzeres at night. The Rebbe turned white, and the Rebbe turned, and you can see the Rebbe was tremendously suffering, tremendous pains. And that's a whole other story, I don't want to take up the time now, how miraculously you see how the Rebbe was able to continue, went to finish the Hakafos after suffering a very severe, by the doctors, uh, terrible pain, a terrible medical condition. And the Rebbe insisted on staying in, um, in 770 and said that they should uh, go ahead and do everything they need to do in 770 in the emergency room. And uh, the doctors, a lot of doctors that came said, you know what, you are going to be... Uh, responsible for the Rebbe's life, because if he doesn't go to the hospital, some major big doctors came and left. They said, we're not going to treat the Rebbe if we have to treat him in his room. It's not possible. And uh, and there was a time, there was at one point, that the Rebbe sort of lost consciousness. And um, the people around the Rebbe, the Rebbe's secretaries, the Rebbe, they didn't know what to do. The rabbis, they called in the rabbis to rule, and all the doctors are saying the Rebbe has to go, and uh, and, the, and the Rebbe said, no, I don't want to go. Who do you listen to? <laughs> and you have to, either way, you know, you're, you, you can't win here. If you make a mistake, you know, you're going to be, uh, you know, for, for the rest of whatever. You can't make a mistake with the Rebbe's life. So what do you do? You listen to the Rebbe? Don't listen to the Rebbe. And the final decision came down with the Rebbe's. The Rebbe has to make, that's what I'm saying, in the time of crisis, a physical crisis, you made the decision. She brought him to the hospital. Nope. Take nope. him to the hospital now. She says, if the Rebbe wants to stay here, and he says, and he is the one, that's what she came through, she says, let him stay in the hospital. And, and she prevailed. And, and they said, the whole the ICU, you were Yeah, they the did whatever oh, they could. Okay. They did whatever they could over there. Right, in the, right, right. No, of course, you know, they, the Rebbe's argument was that we have the technology today to bring all the equipment, everything that is necessary for the patient to the room, which the Rebbe was right in hindsight. I'm not saying that this would be a medical 
condition for anyone else besides the Rebbe. But the Rebbe said, this is what the Rebbe wants. And the Rebbe has told other people, advise them as far as the medical condition. And as the Rebbe later on explained in other cases, that a great deal of uh, part of a person's healing is their emotional state, the way they feel about it. To get the Rebbe in a place where the Rebbe would not be happy, right. would actually be counterproductive, would not add to the Rebbe's health. Right. So it was important they listened to the Rebbe just for the Rebbe's overall health. I mean, unfortunately, the Rebbe did spend time in the hospital later on, you know, uh, eventually. I mean, the Rebbe actually uh, was Nifter. His holy soul parted in the, in the hospital. That was in, uh, uh, you know, that was uh, from uh, Lamat Ches, uh, almost 18 years, um, uh, no, 14 years later, I mean, yeah. from... Uh, yeah, you know, so like 14, you know, it was a long time. The Rebbe was uh, granted many more years of leadership. Um, so that was the other time the Rebbe, uh, the Rebbe in, in, intervened. And, you know, she said that was a very strong. And then, and that was somebody who was on assuming. And, didn't. and then the other case was a spiritual crisis, uh, which came to be. And that was had to do with the books of the Schneerson Library where family members, uh, the Rebetzin's sister, Rebetzin Chana, took the side of her son, uh, saying that the library, the books of her father-in-law, belonged to, privately to the family, and therefore she has a part of it, and therefore her son is entitled to, to part of the library. And, uh, and it went to court. It went to court to make the decision, you know, the whole story in which uh, the Chana, the daughter, the older daughter of the Rebbe, and, you know, her son never came to terms with the fact that the Rebbe, who was the middle son-in-law, became the Rebbe versus his father, who was the older son-in-law, who was not the Rebbe. But he wasn't capable, it wasn't even, it's not like you have to make a choice between two possible candidates. You know, he didn't meet the Prabha even, he wouldn't be even at all, he wouldn't be considered. Because he just didn't, make, but he never accepted it. He was a fine man. Don't get me wrong, but I'm saying, but it couldn't be the Rebbe. You know, the Rebbe is on a different, totally different level in every aspect. So he used to take the books and he wanted to sell them. He argued that they're personal property. And some people say that the uh, pivotal question, the, the the most important question that convinced the judge to rule in the favor of the Chabad movement, that it's a collection that belongs to the organization, not a private property, was the very smart answer that the, uh, they did a, um, uh, they sat down with the Rebetzin. Fortunately, she didn't have to go anywhere. They came down and they did a deposition in the house over there. And they asked her the question and very simply stated to her, who do these Sephorim, who do these uh, books, who do they belong to? Do they belong to your father personally, as an individual, or do they belong to the organization? And she said, well, it's not a question who does the books belong to, but actually the question is who my father belongs to. 
because my father with his books belonged to the organization. So it wasn't like, is he is part of the organization and he can't separate basically between him. And that was her answer, which was really brilliant. very powerful, brilliant and powerful and came. So what I'm saying is, even though the Rebetzin never heard from her, but when it came to these three major uh, life-changing for the organization moments, whether first is the Rebbe becoming Rebbe, and second, when the Rebbe wasn't feeling well, and third of all, when the Rebbe um, had to deal with the library, she, as the Rebbe's wife, came through, and she brought the, the correct answer in all these three major cases. This is what comes to mind. And uh, the doctor who ended up treating the Rebbe, and this is a, going to go in today's discussion. We talk about uh, buying a slave. That's the opening of the parsha. We'll discuss that. And we're going to talk about the idea of slavery. I mean, what does it mean, slavery, uh, to us in our lives? Uh, you know, that we're so busy with life's pressures and we're so running around the, our tails were always running, running. That we're, we're like slaves. We don't have any free time. We don't control the time, but the time controls us. We don't have any time for things that we want, that we need, that is important to us. And we're always under pressure. We don't have time. So here is a, a beautiful uh, anecdote that took place. The doctor, Rebbe's personal doctor, his name is Ira Weiss. And uh, he was, he actually lived in Chicago, he was already, he's modern orthodox, but now he's a chassid, you know, I don't know if he wears a full clad Chabad style garment, but he's mostly, you know, he's devoted to the Rebbe, and um, somehow, you know, the Rebbe always kept a distant, I shouldn't say kept, but the Rebbe was always distant from even those people that the Rebbe worked with very closely, so like, you can't say, like, like, the Rebbe had, you know, secretaries that worked for him, that sent out the letters, worked, talked to the Rebbe, and, and you know, all the Rebbe. These secretaries knew, interacted with the Rebbe at his personal level, about the same like all the people on the outside. They weren't any closer. The Rebbe didn't consult with them, they didn't advise the Rebbe. They were just workers there, so it wasn't like, I mean, the only one who was in the Rebbe's life was the Rebbeson. There was nobody else really in the Rebbe's life who the Rebbe inter interacted. But uh, sometimes with a doctor, you become a little closer, a patient with a doctor. So the Rebbe, in his condition, this Dr. Weiss moved in with the Rebbe for the 40 days the Rebbe spent in his room before the Rebbe ever went home back to his, his residence on President Street, uh, the Rebbe lived in his office. That was, They had a bed over there, and that's where the Rebbe... And the doctor gave up everything that he did, and he monitored the Rebbe for the entire time that the Rebbe we was there. We heard him speak. He came Where? to the Newton Synagogue. That's right, he heard him speak. So he related this story. Yes. This is a story that Ira Weiss related. This story he related. He got close to the Rebbe, and he said to the Rebbe, you know, he wants to share with the Rebbe, a personal issue, a dilemma that he has, and he wants he says, while professionally he feels very accomplished, 
and he feels very successful. He's at a young age, he's a respected cardiologist, he gives lectures, he performs complicated surgeries, he's the head of a team over there of the cardiologist. He's very, very fulfilling. But at the same time, he says to the Rebbe, but his personal life is suffering, his family life, because he is so inundated and he's so overwhelmed, he's so busy with his thing that, you know, phone calls come, he doesn't find that he has enough time for his wife, for his children, for their old getting older, but he doesn't know what to do. He says it's very unfulfilling because he can sit down for a cup of tea with his wife and then the phone call comes and then the uh, everything distracted. So he asked the Rebbe, what do you do? So the Rebbe said to him, you know what, I have a very, a very similar uh, issue, the Rebbe says, in my own life. He said, well, professionally, you know, I feel accomplished, you know, I do a lot of different things, but this takes away for, from my personal life, for my family life, for the time with my wife. And the Rebbe says, this is what I found that helps me, he says. The Rebbe says, every day, 20 minutes, I sit down with my wife for a cup of tea. We discuss all today's events, all outside events. Those are 20 minutes. Those are holy. There is no phone. There is no letters. There is nothing there at that point. That point is holy. It's like, I'm not, I'm not, it's like the Shabbos. You know, we don't do anything. That's the only thing that we do at that time. And therefore, he says, that's what helps. That's what, that is holy. And that is not touched and never removed that time, says the Rebbe. That was the Rebbe's advice to him. And you know, today, today, we're so inundated, you know, with the various different electronic gadget, gadgets, with the WhatsApps, with the all different kinds of things. We don't even have, this is the slavery, we're going to talk a little bit later, a little more. This is the modern day slavery that we're experiencing. We can't rid ourselves and we don't have the time for things that are very important in our lives, for our family, for our things. So just to bring in another, another very interesting story about, you know, knowing the certain times that you don't do anything else. So this is actually about Sir Montefiore, who was one of the wealthiest uh, Jews, and who actually basically, um, he basically, um, you know, gave all of his money for Jewish causes, for everything to to, to uh, and he he was a, 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 a great tremendous philanthropist. What was? How did he make his money? He comes also from a rich family. How did he make his money? He was in England, and what he would do is, he there was only twelve Jewish families that were permitted to be on the market, the stock market. I don't know today, but I didn't hear the market today, but I don't know if you want to be that much in the stock markets these days, but uh, I don't know how we did today, but I know that yesterday it was good. It went up a little bit. Okay. But he was, but in the English stock market, there was only 12 Jews permitted to be there. And what happened was, he was like a, a money manager. 
and he made money for people, so people would invest with him, and then he would invest it in the in the market, and that's how he would get a, a piece of it, you know, when he made the money, and he used to be a good investor, and he made this, he made lots, lots of money. Well, who was his clients? I mean, he had the most uh, wealthiest clients, you know, because he had a good name, and people knew that he could do it, so he would, you know, make, that's how he made his fortune. One day, but everybody knew that this Montefiore, that when it comes Friday, 2 o'clock, he shuts down. He doesn't work from Friday through Shabbos. Now, Sunday is closed anyways. So basically, it turns out that all of the end of Friday and Shabbos and Sunday, there was no activity. Now, while the stock market is closed on Sundays, but there's still, you know, the futures market, this market, the people that are in the... In the stock market, or those who sell and those who do uh, these these things are always busy. It's not only when the market is open; even you can't buy and sell, but you got to know the prospectus and you got to know where to buy. So there's always a time. Him, it didn't matter. Everybody knew. Doesn't do Shabbos. He doesn't do anything. One day he's getting ready for Friday night, sitting down to the meal, and they were eating the the Friday night meal. So the story goes. He sits down by the meal to eat, and there's a knock on the door. And one of his most prestigious, important uh, people that um, um, investors. that investors, that one of the most important people, sends this guy, he has a letter, a very important letter that he wants, that Montefiore, that he should go ahead and read it. He says, is this a matter of life or death, is it nefesh? Then I'll read it. If it's a matter that it is, but if it's a business matter, I don't open, I don't read, I don't do anything about business. Shabbos is Shabbos, no business. Please, it's very important. No, he goes back to the mass to his boy. I want to send him. He comes back. He says, I really want you to know that you're going to lose this customer if you don't read the letter and you don't take it, you're going to lose the customer. You're not, we're not going to do any more business with you. And you don't even have to open the letter. I'll open it for you and I'll read it for you. All what you got to do is listen. He says, if it's business related, I don't do it. <laughs> okay. So he didn't take it. He didn't do it. After Shabbos, he gets a call from this guy. He says, uh-oh. <laughs> he says, oh, now I am in trouble. This is the big guy. He says, I want you to come over. Now with him are sitting two other investors. And he goes over to him and he hugs him. And he says, he says, you know what? You don't know what you did. You just made me a fortune. Mm -hmm. He says, what did you do? He says, you know what? We were discussing about your reputation, how you respect your religion, how you respect your Shabbos, and how you would under no circumstances, you know, even consider violating your Shabbos. And the other two investors said, man, he's a Jew. If the price is right, you'll, you know, you'll get him, you know, forget it, you know, just raise the price. And then we'll see the Nazar. So we decided we're going to make a bet <laughs> with the other two people. We're going to make a bet. And he said, you just made me. I won the bet that I was right, that you weren't going to give up your Shabbos for anything. Well, 
this is really freedom. Freedom means that you're not going to have anything or anyone dictate to you how you should spend. You're going to be in charge of what I want to do with my time, what I want to do with my talents, how I'm going to use it in the positive way. So while you can um, uh, you know, live your life and think that you're free because you don't have to keep the Shabbos and you can be running around and everything else, that's not really free. That means that you're attached, that you can't free yourself. So let's learn a little bit. Uh, I want to talk a little bit about the Parsha, which, you know, first of all, it seems like uh, a little strange learning about the very first law talks about that you buy yourself a Hebrew slave. So he works for six years, uh, and on the seventh year he goes free. So the whole concept of slavery is sort of, uh, we get a little bit of, uh, why would the Torah you know, talk about slavery? Why would slavery be permitted in the first place? You know, think about it. Till 150 years ago in our, in our country, that's why we had the Civil War. What we were fighting about was slavery. It was only 150 years ago. You know, your, your great-grandmother was there, was alive at that time. You know, it wasn't that long ago. 150 years ago, how do we have all the Afro-Americans over here? They used to snatch people and they used to sell them as slaves and whatever they sell. And the slave was, it was like, like they treated them, they were humans, but they treated them like animals. That was your possession. And they were just like workhorses for you. And they did, and they had absolute, they were your possession. You owned them. And this was only 150 years ago. But, but really, you know, the question that begs itself is, why would the Torah start talking about slavery? I mean, here, uh, the Jewish people just came out of, 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 of Egypt, right? The Jewish people just came out of Egypt. The Torah just started, gave them the Ten Commandments. Why would the first law that we were discussing about would be the laws of slavery? It seems like, uh, you know, the Jewish people at, at that particular point, how could you have be? How could it be a Hebrew slave? There's only two, one of two options, as Rashi explains. It can be one of two ways. How do you get a slave? Which A would be um, if a person is so destitute that they can't afford anything, so they sell themselves a slave. So at least they get a meal. At least they get taken care of. Even the wife and the children are fed by the master, and then he uh, sells himself as a slave. Other way would be if somebody goes ahead and steals uh, and doesn't have money to pay back what he stole. So then the base the court will might consider selling them as a as a slave to pay for the damages for the theft that he did. But the Jewish people at that particular point, a they had everybody was wealthy. They all were came out from Mitzrayim. They all had the business Mitzrayim. They were wealthy, and even if somebody wanted to steal, let's say, but they had money to pay. What would it? Uh, how so? It, it really tells us. It really tells us that uh, it's it, it's the message about slavery at that time, and and and, and it, it could be from the two perspectives. It's from the master, and from the uh, from the from the perspective also of the one who's being sold. It can be from the perspective of the master. Um, 
You know, there was once a story told, there was a, uh, a rabbi, a woman, a poor woman comes into the rabbi's office and she says to the rabbi, she says, Rabbi, I have a big problem. My husband, you know, got sick and he passed away. He left me with three young children and, you know, I don't have a job, I don't have a job. I don't have, I can't feed my, my kids. I don't have a, a place to live. I living in this, uh, those days there used to be in the city, a property owned by this rich, wealthy, you know, wealthy Jew in the city he owned a lot of property, but I don't have money to pay the rent. And you know, it's, it's bitter cold outside. It's the middle of the winter. He's ready to throw me out in the street, you know, and uh, which by the way, reminds me of a story of the Rebetzin which I read, I mean, not now, but I read a long time ago, that she one time passed by on Ocean Parkway, and she saw a moving truck and with, with stuff in there, and she was being, they, they were being evicted, and she went and paid the money to have them put back. That's another, that's a, another story that I read some time ago. But in this particular case, uh, the rabbi, um, the rabbi, uh, in this case, um, She's crying. She says, what do I do? You know, I don't know. That. The rabbi says, you know what? I'm going to help you. I'm going to go talk to this, to this rich old land, uh, property owner. I'll talk to him. So he goes to him. It's a big, beautiful house. The heat is up to, to 90 degrees in there. And everybody's warm and comfortable. He rings the bell. Oh, here's the rabbi. He's there. You know, he comes out. He says, rabbi, come into the house. The rabbi says, no, 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 no. I, want to schmooze over here, just, I'm just passing by. And the rabbi says, you know, I want to tell you an interesting insight that came by, and I know that you're a little bit of a learned man, and I had something I want to run by you, an idea about the portion, about Elam Mishpatim, I want to dart in. And the meantime, the guy came down just with a little sweater, you know, it was cold outside, and he's sitting, and the rabbi keeps on talking and talking, and you know, it's like, he's shivering, he's almost freezing over there. And then, okay, okay, finally says, Rabbi, okay, Rabbi says, oh, and, and one more thing I wanted to talk to you about. He says, uh, you know, I want to talk to you about this, this poor lady over here, <laughs> which is about to be, you know, uh, about to be, oh, Rabbi, let's go inside. We can talk, we can discuss that. Rabbi says, no, 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 no. He says, you know, over here, he says, Rabbi says, he says, you know, when you're warm and you're comfortable and you have everything you need, you can't feel what it means to be cold, what it means to be out there in the thing. I says, now is the time that you know if you're going to throw her out so you know what they're going to experience. See, when the Jewish people just came from Egypt, what the, the verse is actually telling us, if you really read the word correctly, the verse is, the verse is actually telling us how we must treat a slave. How, and, and the Torah put it in right in this time, the coming of Mitzrayim, because the Jews just felt it. They know what it meant to be a slave. And they can, what happens with a slave? What happens with a slave? So somebody makes a mistake and goes and steals something. He doesn't have the money. Okay, he came, of course, a bad time. He came out of bad times. He made a mistake. He stole something. Okay, you sell him for a slave. But listen, you must treat that slave with tremendous amount. The Torah tells us only for six years. It's not really called a slave. The verse calls him actually kisachar. He's like a worker. He's not really a slave. The, the laws are very extensive about how we must treat a slave. 
You must feed him from the same food that you eat. You must give him the same wine that you drink. You must sleep in the same bed. You can't get yourself a better, a better bed. Actually, the rabbi said, one rabbi once said, if you only have one pillow, what do you do? You give it to the slave. Is that also a non-Jewish slave or just a Jewish no, slave? No, but Jewish slave also is treated very well. This is No, no, this is for the Jewish slave. But the non-Jewish slave is also, has to be treated in a lot of, what, that's the next step. We're talking now about the Abedivri. But also, a lot better. And, a, and, a, and even a non-Jewish slave can free himself whenever he gets the money, he's allowed to go out for free. And it's not at all, you're not allowed to work with them, work in vain. There's a lot of laws, even to an Evid Kanani. Also, the same thing, you're not allowed to uh, do, you have to treat with respect, not at the same level as an Evid Ivory, but still with a lot of, a lot of laws and a lot of, uh, uh, you know, if you, like in the olden days, what they would do to an Evid Kanani, they would do, they would cut a finger to show this. If you touch, if you hurt your Evid Kanani, it goes out free. The Torah goes out, any of his 24 limbs, if you touch, if you knock out a tooth, he goes free. So, you have to, the Torah has put in a lot of safeguards just in the contrary. But I want you to talk about this, for example. The rabbi said, so the rabbi once asked a question, he said, if you have one pillow, you got to give it to the slave. But why? Why do I have to treat him better than myself? Okay, you tell me I have to treat him just like myself. But why should I give him better than myself? He says, listen, if you only have one pillow, don't buy a slave. <laughs> <laughs> if you're buying a slave, give him the pillow, you know, in other words. So, make sure if you're getting a slave, but... The point here is, the Torah tells us how to treat, and the Torah tells us, listen, this is a very important, the Torah is telling us at this particular juncture, as soon as they're leaving Mitzrayim, you have experienced it, you know what it means to be degraded, you know what it means to work hard, you know what it means to have no rights, you know, don't treat the other one like that, which also comes in with the idea of the Shabbos, we're actually uh, going to take out two Sefer Torahs, and in one of them, uh, we're going to do the Machatzis HaShekel. We're going to talk about that every Yid was giving a half of a Shekel. And of course, the, the question everybody asks is, why a half a Shekel? You know, I mean, it's not even to pay out. Let's say you can't, so let's pay out a half a Shekel at a time. Let's make it a whole Shekel. Where do we find? There's never a mitzvah in the Torah where the Torah tests to give a half. Why is it a half? The Torah gives you a very important message, which ties in with the message of the Evan Ivri, which ties in is that, look, when you're on the top, you need to know that you're only a half. You know what? You think that you're all set, and you think that you are going to be on the top all the time, and therefore you're going to look down or you're going to mistreat. You're the master, you're the Odin, and he is the slave. So you think, you know what? You can mistreat him now because you are the one. Know that you're only a half. There is going to come a time, and all the time, there is something that the other person will give to you in return. In other words, he has something. We're all a half. It tells us that none of us is really a whole. We don't have the whole picture. We don't have the whole thing. We've not made it. We're not it. You know, we're only a half. We're only part of the picture. This is a half of, of a shekel. It's brought about. Why does the Torah call us over here? Eved Ivri, a Hebrew doesn't call an Eved Yisrael. All the time, the Bnei Yisrael are called Yisrael. Why is it called Ivri? 
Before Matan Torah, the Jews were called Hebrews. Who does this remind us of? This reminds us actually of Yosef HaTzadik. Look what happened with Yosef HaTzadik. There were 11 brothers over there, right? Ten of them got angry. They said, this 11, he said, we don't need this guy, the dreamer who's telling us all these things. We can manage very well the 10 of us and we can get rid of him, sell him, throw him into the pit and you know, gone. We don't need, we can manage, 10 of us can manage by ourselves. That was the Ivri. They would and they said they, they say that uh, Nar Ivri that it was calling Yosef was calling him all the time in Ivri. Before Matan Torah. The Torah is telling us this is sort of a a reminder, the same idea. What happened at the end with Yosef? The end of the Yosef he what saved, happened? He saved their lives. They saved their lives, they're only a half. He is the one. They thought that they were on the top. They can get rid of him. He saved the whole family. But not only that, not only that, the actual, it tells us so much. The whole reason why the Jews went down to Egypt in the first place. Why did we go down to Mitzrayim in the first place? It was because they sold their brother. That's actually coming in and it's brought down, the toast is brought down. The reason we give the half a shekel, it's actually to make up for the sale of Yosef. Why did everything happen? It all happens. They sold Yosef. He went down to Egypt. So everybody followed him. He brought down the whole family. Pharaoh dies. And the Jews become slaves in Egypt. So because of the mistreating. If you mistreat your slave. And you take a brother. And you think that you're the whole. That you can manage without them. You need to know you can't manage without them. You need everybody. Everybody counts. Everybody. Otherwise there is the uh, final the end. You don't know the end of the story. Where it's going to end up. And that's why it said, that's why we give a machzis hashekel. It says that, why a half also? Because it turns out, Toysus makes the calculation that uh, each one of them got only a small uh, of the brothers when they sold them the esrim, when they sold them for the esrim kosev, that money turned out to be a half a shekel for each one. So we're sort of making it up. It's also Haman's brought down, that Haman's 10,000 shekel that he wanted to give that was for all the Jews would come out a half a shekel because what Haman was trying to tell HaKadosh Baruch Hu, not to Achashverosh why is he giving him 10,000 why, why did Chashem 10,000 he was saying to Hashem look, look at these people these are people that are capable of selling their own brother <laughs> and look what they do look what they do is this a people you're going to protect people who could be so heartless people who don't care they take a brother here is the 10,000, this is for each. They made, each one made a half a shekel. As Tosus comes up there, the Cheshven, how it comes out. And these are the people you are going to save. Forget about them. And that's why we give the Machzis a shekel. That's what the Ebrishter tells us, Kisikna Eved Ivri. When you buy an Ivri. What are we we're talking about over here? Let's get back to the theme over here. We started talking about this. You know, we are all, in a sense, sometimes... Enslaved. We don't have the time. We are serving. Shem says it's important to start the halachas with you have to be free. If you sell yourself sometimes because you're desperate, because you need to make a living for the six years you're working and doing because you're so busy. But at least when it comes to the seventh year, Shabbos comes. 
Then, you got to go free. Like we said the story, you can't continue that thing. You have to at least find the time that once in a week time that's scheduled to have your family together, to have your Shabbos dinner together, to have the time together, and to gain inspiration and to gain uh, that uh, continuous strength that we need. You cannot continue to be enslaved. And that's also, it's brought down a hint. It says that you take the ear and you bore it with a marzea. So they say the word marzea equals uh, 400. Uh, the number, the gematria of the word marzea is 400. Because the Jews were actually left out of Egypt 210 years before the 400 years. But here, the, the Ebed, we tell you, that six years are up. It's time to go free now. Now, why are you using... He says, no, I don't want to go free. <laughs> I don't want to go free. The Shabbos, now you don't want to go free. So in other words, we're saying to him, listen, you're still an Ebed Ivri. You're still behind. You're, you're, he's seeking Ebed Ivri. You never got out of Mitzrayim. If you were an Ebed Yisrael, when it comes to seventh year, say, okay, you know what? I was enslaved, but now it's time to get free. Now it's time to go out. But no, he says, I want... So we take a Marzea, we take a 400, we drill the ear to tell him, you know what, you are an Ebed Ivri. You're not an Ebed Yisrael, because the Yisrael doesn't accept any other, uh, any other dominating forces over him. And that is a very special um, quality, which one needs to develop, uh, you know, uh, after a full day, uh, every day, same thing. You have to have a little Shabbos, a little seventh plight in your in your day. You know, after a full day, whatever, whether you go out to a job or you deal with with other things, with other uh, things that are a lot of times upsetting and things that are a lot of times cause you that you feel enslaved, that you feel so you feel desperate. But you gotta try to find that oasis, that time of the day, the evening when you just block everything out and just try to just live with your soul, with yourself, with your comfort, and to learn something, to daven, to pray, to, 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 to find sometimes some peace and relaxation for yourself. It's sometimes very difficult to do that because you're so worked up from all your pressures of a whole day. It's hard. But the Torah says, you gotta come, you gotta, gotta come a time that you work in that and you gotta try to do that and a lot of time people find that peace of mind they need in their studies, they just sort of get so absorbed in in their studies in their, that they don't forget about everything else and sometimes people have a hard time studying because of that, but if you can do that, but that's the message the message is basically Stay, um, stay free. Don't, don't be enslaved. Uh, there's a, a story which I've said over. Sometimes a professor once came to teach his students about the importance of life. So he said to them, um, he made a demonstration. He brought in a big jug over there, and he calls over one of the students and he tells him to uh, take the golf balls to put them into the jar. And then he asks the jar full, and they all said, "Yeah, it's full." Okay, then he calls another student, and this time he takes out um, little marbles and shakes them and it fills up the jar. Uh, oh, now it's full. Yeah, takes another student, 
takes out a bag of sand and fills it up. Now it's full. So then he tells somebody else, he takes the cup of coffee in his desk, he pours it in there. So he told them this is a metaphor from life. What is the metaphor from life? The golf balls are the not important things in life. Uh, and uh, I mean, the sand is the not important thing in life. Uh, that's just trivial things that don't really matter in your life. The uh, marbles are a little bit more important, and the most important are the golf balls. Those are the big things in life. Those are the most important in life. So he says, look, if you fill your jug with the golf balls full, that's your life. Your jug is your life. The most important thing in your life, fill them first. Then you have space for the marbles, for the less, and then you even have space for the sand. You fill it up. But if you should fill up your jar first with the sand, there's nowhere for the golf balls to go in the important mm, things point. in life. Then you're just stuck. Then you're filled. Mm. So what are you going to do? How are you going to bring everything else in your life? So one of the students picks up and says, what about the cup of coffee? He says, no matter how busy you are, always have a time for a cup of coffee mm. with a friend. <laughs> so, but the point here is you have to make time for the important things in life. You can't fill with all your worries and with all your problems. If you fill up your life, then you're a slave. Then you're never yeah. going to experience free. But the Rebbitzin, as I spoke before, showed us that when it comes to the crucial moments and the crucial decisions, you, know, you come through in a very strong and a powerful way. So Hashem should help us that in the schus of the Rebetzin, in the schus of the Rebbe, in the schus of our trying to serve Hashem, that give us, free us from all of our uh, slavery, tired libeinu lo'avdu chabayamis, to serve Hashem with purity of heart in a honest, in a good, in a connective way with Hashem. And Hashem will give us Tchiyas HaMesim, we'll be together with Mashiach, with all the Rebetzins, with the Rebbe, it's Tchanesim, and we hope this will happen. Behavior of